Well, two years ago, two years ago when I first moved um, to Australia, I decided that we should do a survey. That we should go door to door and ask everybody in our community three simple questions. Question number one was, in your opinion, right? Easy. In your opinion, what is the greatest need inside of this community? Question number two was, um, what do you think, what do you think that a church should do? And then question number three was, if you had any advice to give to somebody who was going to pastor a new church that was coming here in this area, what would you tell them? Right? And then at the end of all those questions, we would ask if we could pray with them. And um, through some of our partnerships together over the course of that first year of being here, we knocked on about 4,000 of the 4,500 homes that were up here. We talked with somebody from about 1,000 of those homes and completed over, over 500 surveys. That's pretty incredible, right? Yeah. It gives you a pretty good idea of a lot of things that are going on up here. And we learned a lot about our community in that moment. One of them that I learned, and some of the most interesting responses were, um, don't come start a church here. That was one of my favorites. Um, and um, for the advice that followed that one, um, find a different city to start a church in. That was the advice. That was, I was like, hey, these are good advice tips that are given here. Um, and you would think that in asking that question about the greatest need in the community, that you would find various answers, right? That there would be a lot of different things that people would say is the greatest need inside of this community. What we found was that the same theme showed up over and over and over again. And that theme was something along the lines of, I don't know my neighbors. I moved here for community. They sold me on a small town field. That's what I wanted to have and wanted to do, but I don't know anybody. They were looking for some sort of connectedness, some sort of relationship or relationship with their neighbors and those that are around us. Now that information shaped a lot of things that we've done, right? For instance, one of the things that we've done is our small group ministry, right? We encourage you to be engaged and involved in a small group. And you might need to say, well, what's a small group? I don't even know. Well, we don't call them small groups around here. We call them community groups. Why do we call them community groups? Because the greatest need that we felt like people said over and over and over again was, we're looking for community. And we said, let's try to speak into that with these groups that we're going to create. They're not just Bible study groups that we desire for them to be something much more than that that creates community. Last um, series, as we were talking, Caleb brought out an idea that I think rang true with everything about what we've seen inside of this community. Now, we don't think of our community as impoverished, right? Our community seems to be very well off in lots of different areas, but Caleb suggested, and I think he's exactly right, that we live in an area with a huge amount of relational poverty. Relational poverty. And I was like, what an incredible way to describe what it is that goes on inside of our community. And that is that we have all kinds of people that don't even know, don't even know that they're relationally impoverished other than that they desire something more than what they're at, but then they don't know how to get out of the poverty situation that they find themselves in. And as we came to this, this series, this series was born out of a desire to speak into and to address that relational poverty that exists. Maybe it even exists in your life to some extent, and you go, you know, I don't know if I have as many good relationships. In fact, a recent survey 
Um, it was taken in 2015. It's been a long, a long, no, I'm not even going to say the word. It's been done for a long time, multiple times over the course of um, multiple different years. So it was first done in the 70s. It was later done in the 80s, again in the 90s, and then just recently it was done in 2015. In the 80s, it found that one out of about every 10 people, one out of about every 10 people did not have a relational confidant. Somebody that they could go talk to and share all of the things that were going on in their lives. In 2015, what they found is, is that it was one out of four people did not have a relational confidant. And check this out, it got even worse because if they removed the ability to talk to a family member and to consider a family member that relational confidant, it became three out of four. There's been a steady increase in this. And this idea, this idea of relational poverty rubs right up against what it is that I think that we exist for. If you've been around for a while, you know that we say that we uh, believe that we exist as a church to lead people to be the church. That's what we believe. And we say that the church does three things, that it gathers, it grows, and it goes. And we have a word pictures that kind of get associated with some of these different ideas. When we talk about the idea of gathering, we like to think about a little droplet of water. So if you've ever seen our, our blue shirts that run around, in fact, Blaine's wearing his right now, it has a couple of droplets on water, uh, of water there for the word gather. And the reason is this, is that a droplet of water, in order to continue to exist, must attract other water to it. Because if it fails to attract any other water to it, it'll evaporate and no longer exist as a drop of water. And so what begins to happen is that as one drop of water begins to attract and gather other droplets of water, and they begin to gather more droplets of water before long, you get a small stream. And as that water continues to gather more and more droplets, the water begins to have more and more force until at some point you look up and you have a force that is so great that it changes the entire landscape of what's around it. And when we talk about this idea of gathering, this is the concept that we have in mind. And so when we see a place and we see our neighbors, and we look at them and we go, that they are relationally impoverished. It flies against one of the things that we believe the church exists for. Now, as we began our plan, now those of you who were here last week understand that I'm not a plan and process person, all right? I steal plans and processes from other people, and I make adjustments to them as I go. That's what a fly by the seat of your pants guy does. Austin, you missed it. I told everybody last week that I'm not a process guy. Austin knows this. He's tried to help me load the truck a couple of times. But as we were beginning, I sat with some guys who had been church planters for a long time. And they said, here's the problem with the American church planting model. He said, most of the time, the American church planter goes in and they build a church. He says, and then from building a church, they begin to try to make disciples. And then from making disciples, they begin to try to reach their city. He said, the problem with that is, is that that's anti-biblical. He said, that's not what Jesus did, and it's not the model that the Acts Church did. He said, here's what they did. He said, they served the city first. And from that, they found people who were desiring to become disciples, and so they began to make disciples. And then from there, a church sprung up. And so that's been, and if you look back at some of our history of stuff, you go, oh, I see how that's worked out. And some of the things that you've done is that we started with serving our city. We continue. That is one of our big things that we want to be about is about serving Australia. 
And from there, we have found other people that say, you know what, I feel like I have that same sort of calling on my life to do that. And we say, great, come do that with us. And along the way, they invite their friends and their neighbors, some of whom don't know Jesus, and they come to know Jesus for the very first time because they're around these people who have developed community. And they say, you know what, that community is missing inside of my life. And so they become a disciple. And from that, God has begun to build his church. Now, the second thing that was interesting is I sat with these guys who had, who had planted churches ahead of me. Some of them were well down the road. In fact, one of them now has one of the fastest growing churches in North America. And he said, here's one thing that I want you to understand, all of you young church planters that are sitting in the room. He said, I want you to understand that it doesn't matter how long your church is around for. He said, there's one thing that is true, and that is that every church in all of history has come to an end at some point. Some have had a very short tenure. Some have had a very long tenure. He said, the question is not how long will your church exist for? He said, the question is this. He said, will anyone miss your church once it's gone? Will anyone miss your church once it's gone? Do you know what question haunts me in the middle of the night? Will anybody miss this church once it's gone? Somebody in the room right now, you're going, yeah, I'll miss it. Will anybody out there miss us? And the things that we continue to do and the places we continue to lean in is because of that question about will anybody miss us? And here's what I believe. Before we even start the series that we're about to embark on is I believe that this series that we're about to do has the ability to not only transform our own lives, but to transform the kind of impact that we make in our city. And I don't want us to miss that. So with all of that in mind, let's get started with our series. Inside it's comfortable. Inside a house, inside a family, inside a routine. But what if we widen our view beyond the fence across the street? Outside we find people struggling with loneliness, poverty, families that don't look like ours or without a safe family at all. Jesus didn't call us to live by our neighbors. He called us to love our neighbors. Welcome. So glad that you're here, right? That's like the start of a series, right? Well, it's gonna be week one of our series. This will be a six week series. And uh, some of you guys know this about me, some of you may not, but I, um, I love sports, right? In fact, uh, there are only a couple of things I listen to on the radio. Um, I'll listen to podcasts, like leadership podcasts, you know, right? I'll listen to sermons. You're like, oh my goodness, this guy is incredibly boring, right? But I also listen to sports radio. I, I enjoy it. Um, granted, they talk a little bit too much about just um, the Arizona teams around here. I don't know what that is. It's like we're in Arizona or something. Um, but I love sports. And over the past few years, there has been a word that has shown up more and more consistently that confuses me. Maybe it confuses you too, but as they talk on sports radio, they're always talking about the word goat. You guys heard this word? Goat. Now, supposedly, GOAT now stands for the greatest of all time, right? But when I was growing up, that is not what GOAT stood for whenever you were talking about somebody in sports, right? But apparently, somebody along the way said, here, actually, I know who it was. It was Muhammad Ali. In 1992, he first coined the phrase that he was the greatest of all time, and his wife went and took it and made G-O-A-T, Inc., and he was the one who got the credit for all of that later on. So... Great marketer right there, I'm telling you. But inevitably, you can listen for about, oh, 30 minutes on any talk radio station about sports, and the topic will come up about who is the GOAT, right? Who is the GOAT? Is LeBron James the GOAT of basketball, right? 
Now, yeah, see, thank you, Tobi. I appreciate that. We all know it's Michael Jordan, but they try to have this conversation about, and those of you that might be from other generations might have some other guys that you might think are the great, like Wilt Chamberlain or something like that, uh, Dr. J, I don't know, any of these guys that have been around for a while, but, uh, or maybe even Oscar Robinson, I'm telling you, that guy, good stuff. But the greatest of all time. In fact, right now it's football season, and so constantly what we hear is, is Tom Brady the greatest of all time? Are we living inside of an era that we'll never see ever again, right? I'm like, no, it's Joe Montana. Come on, he was obviously the greatest of all time. And I know that my, my man Brennick back there is wearing his Chiefs shirt today, and so um, he's definitely a Montana fan from his, from his Kansas City era, certainly not from his. Um, 49ers day but the greatest of all time you know the reason that it uh, shows up as a conversation is because people always have an opinion about the greatest of all time they have some nugget of insight maybe a statistic that they use to argue why somebody or something was the greatest of all time or maybe Maybe it's just that experience. I watched this person, and so I know that nothing else compares to them. Nobody could possibly be as great as this specific whoever or whatever in whatever the sport may be. And so people have an opinion about it, and they talk about the greatest of all time. So it should come as very little surprise to us that if our human nature likes to compare things and make lists of things and rank things, that in the story that we're going to look at today, that we find the same thing. In fact, it is a goat conversation. They are looking for the greatest of all time. And it's really, it kind of comes in a series of attempts to uh, trap Jesus. And uh, Jesus asked, he's asked the question of, Jesus, what is the greatest of all time in the commandments? Now, scholars have added them all up. There are 613 different commandments in the Old Testament. Whew, that's a lot. 365 of them are negative statements. Don't do this. Don't do this. That's one for a day. So if you're looking for something to like, you know, set your life on every just one do not every day. Just learn another do not commandment, and you could be an amazing kid by the end of the year, right? 365 of them. The other 258, excuse me, 248 are positive statements, things that we should do. Now, David, right, the guy considered to be the greatest king of Israel of all time, he made his own top 11 list. He's like, here's the top 11 commandments that I think exist. And then we have like another serious contender in the, uh, the 10, right? The 10 commandments that were written by God's own hand uh, and handed to Moses. Certainly one of these has got to contain, and maybe all of those are the greatest of all commandments. And this has got to be a hot button issue. Everybody has an opinion about it. And so this is certainly certainly going to get Jesus in some hot water with at least somebody, right? So if you have your Bibles, open them up with me. We're going to look at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 28. And as you're, you're turning there, let me just back up and catch you up just a little bit on the narrative of what's going on. Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem for the very final time. Right? So last time, the triumphal entry, he's come in riding on a donkey. The people threw a massive parade for him. Right? They were throwing down shirts and jackets and palm branches and screaming and yelling Hosanna at his name. And he came in with an amazing amount of fanfare. And then Jesus walks into the temple. He walks into the temple and what he finds in the back is, is that they are selling stuff. By the way, in case you didn't know, we have extra shirts that we're selling back there. Thank you. I appreciate that. And Jesus turns over all the money changers and runs them out of the temple. You talk about people that were celebrating at that moment, right? They're like, woohoo, we don't have to pay anymore, right? And so everybody loves Jesus and they're listening to him. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were all getting together and they're like, we've got to do something. This guy is about to upend our entire religious system. 
The Pharisees were the guys who, they were like the keepers of the law. They interpreted, in fact, their best friend was Herod, right? And Herod was the guy who was put in power by the Roman authority. So they had all of these interests about what was going on inside of their religious system. And so they come to Jesus with this incredibly difficult question and say, Jesus, should we pay taxes? Now, some of you are going, I hope Jesus said no. Unfortunately, Jesus didn't say no. He took out a coin and he said to them, he said, look, whose picture's on the coin? Then you should render unto Caesar what already belongs to Caesar and definitely give back to God what already belongs to God. And the Pharisees walked away and they're like, we don't have anything to be able to say to that. Because he answered both sides of what it is that needed to be answered in that and didn't make anybody upset. So they were silenced. And so the Sadducees came to, to Jesus with their question. Now the Sadducees, unlike the, the lawmakers of the Pharisees, they were the ruling body. They were like the judges that sat over everything. They determined if what you had done was right or wrong against what the law says. Now, our joke in college, I went to a, a, a Baptist college that taught the Bible, and they, we used to say that the Sadducees didn't believe in the, in the resurrection. And that was why they were sad, you see. That was pretty good. And so their question is all about the resurrection. In fact, they paint this scenario that makes the resurrection seem like it's an absurd concept. And they say there's this guy right and he marries a woman he's the first of seven brothers and he dies before there's an heir born and so Moses law says that the, the next brother becomes married and he's supposed to procreate and that didn't happen either in fact that brother then dies and she moves on it goes all the way through all seven brothers and never was an heir produced now first of all if you're the seventh brother who gets married to the woman who has taken out all other six, are you nervous at that point? I would be. I'm just saying. Right? But they look at Jesus and they say, so Jesus, at the end of this, whose wife is she when the resurrection happens? She's been married to all seven of them. So how does this work? In other words, they were painting a picture that says, look, the resurrection is not a real thing. Can't you just say that because this sort of scenario would not work? And Jesus again answers them in such a way that they are left silenced and without a response against him. And in the wake of that, the third group of people, the scribes, come to Jesus, a particular scribe, and asks him a question. Now the scribes were like FedEx Kinkos of ancient Israel, all right? Before FedEx Kinkos existed where you could copy everything, these guys had to meticulously, by hand, copy word by word, dot by dot, because in Hebrew, if you don't know this, the dots are important, right? They change an entire word. And so dot by dot, he had to record everything. And so he was very familiar with the scripture. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks him, at this question and has this encounter. So hopefully you found it with me. Let's read it together, starting in verse 28. It says, And one of the scribes came up, and he heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, that being Jesus, had answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered him, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said there's no other commandment greater than these and the scribe turned to him and said, you are right, teacher. He said, you have truly said that he, that is God, is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as themselves is much more than even the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And when Jesus saw that the scribe had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. God, I thank you for our text today. Thank you for the heart of this people that are here. And I pray more than anything that um, this might guide our interactions today. But not just today, God, but this week, this month, and God, from this point forward. God, I pray that we would be like, like this scribe who studies your word and that we would be found in your kingdom and not just near your kingdom. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. All right, so this story, this story of Jesus being asked about the goat of commandments is actually found in three of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, it's interesting that there are some differences between the three passages, and we're going to cover some of those over the course of the next several weeks. Now, Matthew and, and Luke both say that this is a Pharisee, a lawyer, who comes to ask the question, right? But Mark, on the other hand, says that it is a scribe. Now, all of the passages give the same gist of what's going to happen here. And they say that here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And Mark though, Mark though gives us some unique details inside of his account. Some things that don't show up in any of the others. And I think that there's some really, really important details. Here's the first major difference between the passages, and it is this, that Jesus' answer starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now, you, it's quite possible, it's quite possible that the other two authors just decided to omit Jesus saying this part. You say, what? They edited something that Jesus said? Listen, they didn't write down every single word that Jesus said and record everything that was there. If they had, it, as John says, it would have filled up multiple volumes and we wouldn't have been able to contain it all. So they had to make choices about what they kept or didn't keep whenever they were providing something to us. Now, it's very possible that the other two authors determined that this was something that they could omit. Why? Because this was the start of something that every, every Jew would know. It was a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, right? It's the Shema. Now, Shema in Hebrew means to listen. It literally comes from the very first word, hear. Now, Shema is not that word of just um, hear what's coming, but it's this idea of active listening. In other words, you're supposed to act upon what it is that you hear. And twice a day, every devout Jew would have said this prayer. They would have quoted the entirety of what it was that Jesus was saying right here. And so for those other two authors to have omitted the front part would not have been a huge deal because they were both primarily writing to a Jewish audience who would have said, oh yeah, it starts with this. And then here is the commandment of love your, the Lord your God with everything that you have. In fact, most kids by the time that they were eight or nine years old could recite this because it was used like a bedtime prayer for them. And much in the same way, if you come to my house at, at, at nighttime, and we're putting our girls down, 
Addison, she prays and uses her own words to, to say a prayer. And then for our almost two-year-old, we all put our hands together and we say, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You guys could probably all finish that off. Not all of you, but most of you, because you've said it. It's not in the Bible, right? We're not teaching it to her because that's how it is that you have to pray. But we're teaching her about praying by using that. And at two, almost two, she's figured out the cadence of it now, and she begins to mumble along with us. Much in the same way, any devout Jew would have known this passage. It was incredibly familiar to them. But even though it was familiar, None of them would have said it was the greatest commandment because there were all kinds of arguments that were going on about what is the greatest. But Mark starts with Jesus starting at the beginning about hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, it might seem that I picked this really nice passage to dive into for us to start with talking about neighboring, right? Because he says there that one of the two greatest commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. But I don't want us to miss where Jesus starts at. Because Jesus starts with God. He starts with the Lord our God. In fact, in case we miss it, Right? Right after that, the scribe comes back and says, you're right, the Lord our God is one. And I was like, that's incredible. It begins with God. It begins with a God that is not divided. He is unified and whole. And because there is no division amongst who God is, he knows something that we can probably never fully know and understand, and that is perfect love. Now, I've said this before, but I think it's important that we note again that God is a relational God. He is a relational being. He doesn't exist in some sort of a, a, a vacuum, but God in all of his perfection and it is a, he lives in a relationship. In fact, John records it this way. He says, Jesus talks and he says, I and the Father are one in John chapter 10, verse 30. And again, later, as Jesus is preparing for his death, the same week, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and has a prayer. And John records him saying this. He says, I pray to the Father and say, I pray that they, meaning his disciples, would be one. Just as he and the Father are one. You see, it's from that perfect relationship that God created and invited us to be in relationship with him. We were created for relationship. Not just a relationship with God the Father, but also a relationship with one another. And so when Jesus drops the goat right here, it really shouldn't surprise anybody. And actually, nobody even argued with what Jesus said. In fact, it says nobody dared ask any more questions after this moment. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Intimacy requires proximity. Intimacy requires proximity. You see, Jesus begins, and I believe that Mark records this beginning, to remind us that our love for God begins with God. Our love for God begins with God, the one whom Jesus was already intimately connected with. And his desire was that we could have that same type of relationship that he already had. God is one. He is not divided. And it's from that perfection and that perfect union and that perfect relationship that God then invites us 
into that kind of community. And he says, look, if you understand that God is perfect in his love, if we understand this concept, then we can expose a gigantic flaw that exists in a lot of our thinking. And the flaw is this. God doesn't need me. We think that he does. A lot of times we walk around in our lives with the belief that God needs me. But we understand that God's invitation to us came out of what was already a perfection of unity and relationship. We begin to understand that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. In fact, God needs us about as much as God needs a dog. Some of you are going, God needs a dog? No! God doesn't need a dog! But I couldn't come up with anything else that God doesn't really need either. So I was like, the best thing to bring myself to is probably a dog. Because God doesn't need us. But don't miss this. While God doesn't need us, he does desire us. He does desire us. God desires me. You see, I was created, you were created, so that God could have a relationship with you, with us. He doesn't need me, but he desires me. Now, some of you say, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between those two things? What's the difference between need and desire? Well, a lot of you in the room are married. And so am I. And there are moments when my wife needs me, right? She needs me to carry a heavy box that she can't carry. She needs me to come save the family from this little tiny bug that exists, right? Sometimes she tells me what she needs me to do. I don't know about you, but I don't like being told what I need to do. In fact, when she tells me that she needs me to do the dishes, sometimes I debate about if I really need to do the dishes. I usually decide it's in my best interest of my health to do the dishes. But then there are moments when my wife desires me. Oh, yeah, you hear the difference. We've got kids in here, so we'll keep this PG-13, right? But I'm just saying that there are moments when my wife desires me and I want to drop everything to be in that moment with her when she desires me. Intimacy requires proximity. But don't let this get you confused that this just means that we have to be near somebody. I'm sure you've all sat in the same room with somebody else when they've got a cell phone in right? You ever tried talking to somebody with a cell phone in their hands before? You just as well record yourself and leave it there for them to play it back later because they're going to ask you what? 8,000 times because they're not really near you or proximal to you. They're about as far away from you as they can possibly be. At least that's what my wife reminds me of anytime that I'm on my phone when we're talking. So, <clears throat> but I, uh, I've also had the uh, good fortune of having a long-distance relationship. Anybody here ever had a long-distance relationship before? Yeah? Very good. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, they don't last very long. I made it a good three months. I was dating a girl. She lived two hours away at a whole nother college, right? And all the time, she wanted to talk on the phone. Now, my wife will tell you that if that's what any relationship for me is going to be based off of, it's probably not going to last very long. She says she does good if she can get six or seven minutes out of me on the phone. Because I just don't like to talk for very long on the phone. And so it requires that we be close to build those kind of intimate relationships and connections. And God says, look, the greatest of all commandments is because God loved us so much that we love him back with everything that we he says, I desire you, I desire to be with you, and he wants from us a response back that says, I desire you too. And 
and I desire to be in a relationship with you. Now, that's incredible. What a great goat to have, right? What a great, greatest of all time. God loves me, and he wants me to love him back. And so some of us were like, man, I can do that. I mean, I can spend some more time in my Bible reading. I can go home and pray some more. I am so glad to know that, that God loves me like this, and that he desires me. And it kind of makes me want to do something. And so, whoo, Charles, great message. This is good. Let's all go home. He didn't end right here. Without even missing a breath, Jesus goes, and, right? It's like the, the, the uh, what is it, the Coke Zero commercial where the guy's sitting there talking to his boss and the boss is like, we can do this for you. And the guy goes, and, and he says, and, and we can do this for you. And he says, and, and we can do this for you. Jesus added on the end and said, here it is. Not only do you love the Lord your God with everything that you have, but he says, and you love your neighbor as yourself. He said, these are the two greatest commandments. They are a 1A and a 1B. In fact, theologians now are arguing, did God, did Jesus just combine them to make one great commandment? That the great commandment was now to love God and to love people. And it was connected by the word and. There wasn't a choose one, do one or the other, right? It wasn't a, hey, here's what you need to do. Focus on your piety so that you can be amazing with your relationship with God. That's what's important. It wasn't a, oh, no, just go do good things to people over here. That's what's important. No, Jesus said it's not one or the other. It's both. It's both. And so if you're taking notes, here's the second thing I want you to see. Ministry flows out of intimacy. Ministry flows out of intimacy. You see, we cannot love our neighbor until we first love God. Now, you could probably do good things for your neighbor. You could go and take their trash and haul it away. You could mow their lawn. Oh, we don't have anything to mow. Sorry, can't mow their lawn. You could pull some weeds. You could do good things for your neighbor. But the question becomes, in doing those good things, am I loving my neighbor? Now, let me slow down for just a second. Because this first part may not seem like an important point as we begin a series on neighboring, but I don't want us to misunderstand that while we could do whatever five-step process to be a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Uh, sorry, just want to make sure you guys were awake. Um, so while we could do whatever five-step process there might be to being a good neighbor, right, unless we understand that it begins with God and our relationship with God that we cannot love our neighbor. It's an impossibility. Not only that, but if we begin to try to do some sort of a social agenda over here of doing things for our neighbors, because that's what we think is the right thing to do, then we have reduced it to a law that we're supposed to follow. In Luke, and we're going to look at this one in just a couple of weeks, in Luke, the lawyer shows up and he begins the question of Jesus with Jesus, what does it take for me to gain eternal life? And Jesus and this lawyer come up with the same answer. That it's about loving the Lord your God with everything that you have and loving your neighbor as yourself. And he tells him to go and do it. Here's the thing that's hidden inside of that. There is no other way besides Jesus to get eternal life. So when Jesus answers his question and he uses the man to answer the question about what it is that he should do to gain eternal life, he says, you can't do it. It's an impossibility apart from me. 
And so as we tackle all of this, I want us to understand that we can't do this apart from God. Because if we do, if we boil it all down into all of these sorts of things, then we miss out on God. Instead, God wants us to be holy. He wants us to set our directions on him. He wants us to pursue him. And then he wants us to pursue those that are around us. And when we do it, when we do that, it transforms not only us, but it transforms those around us. Now, being a neighbor and living out this commandment of being a neighbor doesn't start with us just knocking on our neighbor's doors. That's not how this starts. It starts with us developing a deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus and the Father. But it's not meant for something to stay indoors. I heard a great illustration this week about a cup of water. And they said, here's what happens for most of us as Jesus followers. He said, when we come to church, we show up and our cup is half full of God. And we come to church and say, church, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fill me up. And so we come to worship in this place to be filled up with God so that we can go out and experience him the rest of our week and not run dry and so that we have enough to make it all the way through. And I heard somebody say this. They said, what if, what if instead of coming to church to be filled up, we came to church already filled up? We already had our relationship with who God the Father is. And throughout the week in our intimate time, listen, we're not getting in bed with the Father here. Right? There's something totally wrong with that image if that's what's happening. You do that in your own personal quiet times. And if we come into this place already filled up and then the point of the Holy Spirit happens here, all of a sudden we end up with something. I didn't have enough water. <laughs> took too many drinks but we end up with something that begins to overflow and that same idea that we talked about the gathering droplets together with lots of water as it flows out and around begins to change the landscape that's around it happens in our own lives and it starts with us coming here not empty but full so that as God continues to pour in, the overflow of our life begins to shape the ministry that we have to those that are around us and how it impacts them and influences them. Here's the final thought. Not only does it take, not only does intimacy require proximity, not only does ministry flow out of intimacy? But I want you to understand that you can't fake it till you make it. You can't fake it till you make it on this. The scribe agreed with Jesus. Did you catch that? He said, what you're saying is right and true. He agreed with everything. In fact, the scribe went on a little bit further down the road than what Jesus had said. And he said, what you've said is so true. And if it really is true, the implications of what you're saying, he said, it totally disrupts everything about what my religious life has looked like. He said, it replaces the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Everything that the temple was built upon no longer was needed if we had the ability to love God and to love our neighbor. He said, all of that gets to go by the wayside. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you're right, and you're close to the kingdom. Now here's what Mark doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us what happens to the scribe. We have no idea if this scribe walked away and ever figured out what the truth of getting into the kingdom of God really was. Now, I think a whole bunch of us are rooting for him. 
This guy's got it mostly figured out. Surely he can get there. We're hoping that he gets there. I'm hoping one day to get to high five this guy when I'm walking the streets of heaven and go, dude, you rocked it when you had that conversation with Jesus about what was going on and what the goat of all time was. But he may not have. Because here's the deal. You can't fake this. You can't fake a relationship with God. Showing up to church does not replace a relationship with Almighty God. Being a good neighbor, loving our neighbor, doesn't replace anything else. And if you just continue to do those things, it doesn't get you in. You'll miss it. Jesus says it's all about a relationship with me. And that relationship with me should cause things to overflow out of your life that causes you to pursue those who are around you in the same way that I already pursued you. And it changes everything. This is not something you can fake and still make it. You know, as I was doing some reading and praying this week, I ran across a, a quote from a guy named Rick Rosal. He wrote a book called The Neighboring Church. And he said that God challenged him with a, a, a question. And instead of the question about uh, who is my neighbor, he said, am I a good neighbor? Am I a good neighbor? And then Rick really dug it in. Because he said, I want to take it one step further and ask this question. He said, would my neighbor miss me if I was gone? It's like, yeah. It's the same question I ask about our church all the time. And you know what makes a difference? And how I know that our church would be missed is if each one of us as neighbors would be missed. Let's pray. God, I know that I'm standing up here talking about all of this stuff, and God, I'm the chiefest of sinners when it comes to all of these things that we talked about. God, I'm not a good sinner, or I'm not a good neighbor, and I know that most of my neighbors would never even miss me if I was gone. God, I pray that over the course of this series that I begin to take steps to change that, to impact the places where you have placed me at. God, I pray for my friends who are sitting in the room right now. God, I I not only challenge them with this question, but God, that they would look at their lives and ask the question of, am I faking it? You know, if that's you, if you're sitting here right now and you say, you know what? If, you're on, if I was honest, maybe I've just been playing the church game. I've just been coming, just been hearing, just been checking it off, thinking that that makes everything okay. Listen, I don't want you to be like the scribe who just came near to the kingdom. I want to tell you how to get the keys to get in. So if you're sitting here today and you say, you know what? I don't know. Come find me at the back. Share with me just what's on your heart. I'll share with you how to make my best friend Jesus. Father, I thank you just for the, the blessing of today and the opportunity to share. Just give you all of the glory and the honor in your name.